Hello everyone and welcome back to the May episode of Footprints. This month it's all about trees. Coming up we visit Bath City Farm and find out about raising a wassail cup to the apple trees and the high sheriff and the mayor make an appearance. In our expert eye section, Joe Middleton from the Woodland Trust tells us all about ash dieback. But let's begin with a tree trail in Bath. Fiona Bell joined me at the circus and told me about a new initiative to show off Bath's numerous and wondrous trees and to show me some. I'm with Fiona Bell who is here to talk about the Bath tree trails that she's involved in in collaboration with Bathscape and others on the group. Tell me more about that, Fiona. Um, well, it's all come together quite in quite an exciting way, really. I went on a tree trail through the Sydney Gardens Tree Weekender in November and I was so inspired by it I thought well Bath needs some urban tree trails that we can share more widely with people who are either visiting the city or people who are residents who come into Bath and so I messaged a whole group of people that I thought might be interested and was very surprised they replied by return of email saying yes they'd like to be part of the group which included Lucy from Bathscape, it included people from Visit West, the people in Forest of Imagination at Bath Spa University and Bath Parks and Gardens people as well. So they all agreed to come together and we looked at what we could do in terms of devising, curating sets of trees for people to go and find across the city which would take them on a journey through our buildings but also with a purpose to appreciate the trees that are in our landscape. And we're starting off here right in the middle of the famous circus in Bath which in the middle of it has five plane trees is that right it does it has five plane trees now it did have more before but um the ones that are here are i discovered from being a complete tree novice in november to now is that these trees are actually not completely native species to the uk they're actually a hybrid species of tree and people can't actually pinpoint how they came to be because they don't know whether it was by accident or whether it was by um, design, but that they think in, in Oxford when this tree came together, was, was formed, what they found about it was when you make hybrid, the tree becomes, um, often grows bigger than the, either of its two parents. And these London plane trees grow a lot taller. They're very resilient to what was pollution in the Victorian times from Victorian smoke, but now are very resilient to the, the pollution that we produce from our cars. So we want to make sure they stay here and I understand that the roots are now compacted by so many people wandering about under their branches that they may be roped off in the future. That, that's right and that's another thing I've been learning since November that trees don't really like to have compacted roots so giving them a good mulch and giving them some space is what they need so there are quite a few people interested in and, and lobbying and, and discussing with the council looking at the signs of the trees where they're under stress and um, proposing that maybe they should be roped off so when you see trees out in other places that are roped off it's not because they want to stop you climbing there it's actually for the good of the trees and we are going to go on a tree trail now aren't we and, and you're going to take me to a park that i don't think i've ever even heard of never mind been to called hedgemead is that right that's right. We're going to go to Hedgemead Park, which was constructed in Victorian times after there'd been a landslip and a huge number of trees were put into the park. And we've been delighted as we've taken more people around there that even local bath people said, oh, I've never been in this park before. And, and to see it right now in the spring is just marvellous because there's some beautiful uh, leaves coming out and blossoms and stories to tell. So tell me where it is from here. 
So from here we're going to go out a bit towards the west, crossed over Lansdowne Road, and it's the space of the park is really between the London Road going up the hill over along Lansdowne Road. I don't know if that helps explain where it is to you, but it's, it's below Camden Crescent. It's in that space on the hill, uh, if you like, up from T.R. Hayes, if people know that. They may have heard of Vegmead, which is a, there's a vegetable garden in it, which is a community vegetable garden there as well. Oh, let's get there then, before it rains. So we're now above London Road, at the top of Hedgemead Park, sat under the bandstand, and we're looking at a tree with a plaque, and I think it's got a QR code on it. Tell me about that. Yes, yes, and this is something that the, um, the he- friends of Hedgemead Park um, put together. They, they decided they wanted to label their special trees so that other people could enjoy them. And they did this by putting QR codes on all the, all the tree labels, which they then researched out what's the best way of labelling a tree, because some people worry about that. And they actually ended up getting in contact with the people who make the tree plaques for Kew Gardens. And so they've got the really high standard of, of tree plaque um, and they've shared that with me so I've been able to share that with other people. And on the QR code you can just shine a point a smart device at it and it will then give you access to more information about the tree and why it has anything to do with it that makes it special and why they've chosen it to be on their tree trail. Brilliant. Let's go and see what this first one says then. It's very noisy here with the yeah. cars. So this looks like a birch to me, but not a normal birch. It's not got the same bark, has it? Oh, it's a downy white birch. It is indeed, yes. This is a downy white birch, which actually doesn't originate as a native tree from the UK, but is from Europe, which you can see from the plaque. But if you want to know more, you then want to go shine your um, smart device at the, at the plaque. Morning. So I'm going to go and do it. Shall oh, I have a go? you can do that with your yeah. phone. There we go. Oh, and that... Um, if I then press on that one there, it will take me straight away to a record about the tree. And so this is information that the, the friends have gathered. And we just wait for the... There we are. So it's a common white birch and it can reach 30 metres height when it's mature. And it has elegant drooping branches. Do you agree? If we look up and see how it's beautiful, beautiful it is. yes, it is. And it's just coming into leaf. And it's a monitious tree which means both male and female flowers grow on this tree. Now, that's another thing I've learned about trees, because there are some that are, may only be just male or female, and there are some that are both. Oh, like the holly. The holly's only male or female, that's isn't right. it? And that's you have right, to have Tommy. both to get the berries. I know that one. <laughs> Come on, then. What are we going to see next? Well, oh, this looks like a beautiful, knobbly beech tree to me. One down here is a, yes, it is indeed. This is a, a beech tree. One of the things you notice about beeches is their roots, which you can see is spreading out quite a long way along the ground. And again, there's a, a plaque on the tree, and you can find that information about it if you want to know more. And actually, it's a copper beech. It is indeed a copper beech, which um, obviously has different coloured leaves to your average beech. But again, it's a native species of beech, so that's a good one to have in the park. What's this one? This is very beautiful. Specimen tree, it looks like, in the middle of the piece of grass. It is. It's a very beautiful weeping ash. And actually, the weeping ash tree is one of the ones that is more resistant to the problems of ash dieback. But this particular tree, this weeping ash in Hedgemead Park, is doing very well. And so we hope it'll stay doing this way for quite a while. Brilliant. OK, which way next? Oh, this one, this one's called the Tree of Heaven. Can we look this up on your QR reader? 
I like the thought of a tree of heaven. It, I know it's not native because it says it comes from North China. Here we go. This is a deciduous tree and it was introduced to the UK in the early 1750s and it's been frequently planted in gardens and parks for its very beautiful foliage. It has feather-like leaves with long points and they turn reddish gold in the autumn. This tree can grow up to 15 metres in 25 years but rarely lives beyond 50 years and that's a, a good point for people is that you know, if you're looking after your trees and you know how old it is... When it's starting to approach maturity, you need to think about if you love it really much, you might want to consider a replacement policy so you've got another tree to come along beside it so that when it comes to the end of its life, you won't miss it so much that it, there's just a gap that you can fill it, it with a replacement. You're right, actually, because it's very easy to think of trees as just they've always been there and they'll always be there. And actually, of course, that's not true. And here is, mm, this looks like a maple or a sycamore or... Something like that. But what of, is it? The reason I brought you to this oh. tree right now is to show you. <laughs> I thought that was a real bird and a real egg, but it's not. It is. You're right. So the one of the entertaining things that the friends did was to choose 12 of the trees in which to place an interesting little woodland-type creature or uh, insect of some sort. And we've just found the blue tit that's in one of the we trees. Have. And we're not going to tell you which tree it is so that when somebody else comes along, they can find it and be as surprised and delighted as you were, Pommy. OK, I won't say any more about this tree. We'll move swiftly on. There's one over there that looks as though it's got a sort of face on it has it got a face on it it has yes i think it's a it's a carving of a kind of sun face i think but it's one of the 12 objects so you found another one that oh, is found another one already you have. you're doing really well so you've ticked off two out of the 12 <laughs> and this is i'm allowed to say this is an oak aren't i it you is are. an oak it's how quite a young know? oak how i did think you know it was an oak probably i knew it was an oak because the leaves are fully out and they're very very oak shaped that's right. That's oh, right. And the bark is very oak, oaky bark. Yeah, it is, and it is quite. It is a young oak, but it is very, very long, and of course a native of this country. So it's really important when we're sharing some of the or curating our trees on these trails to highlight trees that have come from the UK originally. But after the Ice Age, I was surprised. You know, there were only 34 species of tree that were actually. Uh, are native to the uh, that survived and were native to the to the UK, but then also to share the interesting hybrid trees and the ex what we call the the exotic trees, which are ones that have been brought in uh, either deliberately or sometimes by accident. Okay, well, next to this young oak is an enormous horse chestnut, isn't it? It, it is. must be pretty old. It is. It's an enormous horse chestnut and. I think this one might be one of the champion trees in the park. Ooh. So another thing that, that has been a revelation to me as a new person on the tree in the tree world is that the, there is actually a national tree register that's um, curated by tree um, experts in the country. They find the, the most wide, sort of largest girth or the tallest trees of each type and are logging those and awarding uh, either county champion status or even national champion status and bath has a lot of champion trees and really? the horse chestnuts particularly seem to grow here very well and although again were imported as we they're not a native tree but they they grow and thrive very well in our climate here and we have some real big champion trees both here and in green park and in henrietta park well, that is a fine specimen, isn't it? Just nestling next to the fountain. 
It's an amazing tree. It is, and the, and the green, when they first come to leaf, is just so lovely. And the, obviously the candles are coming, so you'll soon see the, the little candles that are going to grow and then make it even more dramatic a spectacle to see and enjoy. And then we get the conkers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. From here I can see eight branches from about, I don't know, three metres up, it, it branches into eight different enormous trunks. Fabulous. And there's another copper beech, I think. So here we are, right up close to this champion horse chestnut. It's called a bowman's horse chestnut. Origin, Greece and Albania. Oh, and it's got another little joy this time in the shape of a very small owl perched up there children must love this mustn't they so this is not the only tree trail in the city as you've mentioned there's one in sydney gardens and another in henrietta park and there's more to come i believe tell me about that well, yes, what we'd like to do is, is um, explore having an urban, recorded urban tree trail across the city. One looking at the south side of the city from St James Street, taking you over the river and back again. And then another one which would go into Victoria Park, um, where there are a huge wealth of trees that have been planted over the years. And then we'd like to do one out in Twerton because we're discovering all these lovely specimens of trees in Twerton. That, for example, we think the tallest tree in Twerton is a, a sequoia in the St Michael's Church that some enthusiast planted years ago and is you know a huge redwood that that you can still see it from all over Twerton. Fantastic thank you so much Fiona it's beginning to rain now so I think we should head off back into the city into the dry. Oh thank you it's been delightful talking to you Pobby. Oh what a wonderful thing that was to go for a walk spotting trees in an urban park in Bath. I'll definitely try out more trails as they become available. And as you heard, we found a weeping ash, and I wanted to find out more about ash dieback. So I caught up with Joe Middleton, a site manager from the Woodland Trust, and started by asking him to tell me what ash dieback actually is. Ash dieback is basically a fungal disease that originated in Asia, where it, it coexists with everything else, but it spread to Europe and eventually to the UK, and it basically damages our European ash. So the common ash tree that we all know from this part of the world is dying quite large numbers because this fungus is essentially attacking it and causing it to die back. So the name ash dieback is is literally the, the ash trees dying back from the top down caused by this fungal disease. Ash dieback is basically it's sort of the first in a long line of tree diseases that are coming because of globalisation, essentially movement of timber, movement of saplings, garden materials around. So ash dieback only affects ash trees, essentially. But unfortunately, I don't, I don't want to be such a doom-monger, but if you add on sudden oak death, sweet chestnut blight, phytophthora mormon larch, uh, emerald ash borer, uh, acute oak decline the list goes on and on and on and it's it's a slightly depressing outlook in terms of tree diseases because nature just can't keep up with the way we are moving things around the globe at the moment and 
ash dieback is is the big one at the moment that is affecting us is hitting our our woodlands and our trees right now and uh, it's something that we any landowner is having to do and take quite large steps to prevent it causing huge damage much like dutch elm disease did back in the 1970s Dutch elm disease passed from um, beetles. It was carried by beetles and then uh, as those beetles spread and ate around the tree, it infected it. Ash dieback is literally a fungus. So the fungus disease lives on the trees, the spores travel on the wind, but then as those leaves drop down to the ground, the fungus turns into tiny miniature, little tiny white mushrooms. And every autumn they spore again and then the wind blows them back up and then they carry on the wind and do the same thing again, land on leaves and get back into the to the stem and the, the, the cambium of the tree, the main trunk, and then do the same thing and unfortunately block the passageways of, of water by killing off the cells and um, it basically means trees just can't regenerate, they can't store enough uh, nutrients for the winter and eventually they die off, sadly. of ash trees are likely to go. Now that figure, it does move. It started about 95% death and it was very terrifying about five years ago and then they've lowered it down to about 80. But at some stage we did think it would go even lower, but unfortunately not. The lessons we're learning from um, much of continental Europe, Norway, Finland, where it attacked probably about 10 years previous to us, um, is that, yeah, you will likely lose about 80% of your ash trees. So there's about a 20% tolerance. So if, you know, if you've got a woodland with 100 trees, you'll only have 20 left, which is devastating. But it does mean that over, you know, centuries, there hopefully will be enough species diversity within that 20% or genetic diversity, I should say, really, to be able to um, make new ash saplings that are tolerant to the disease and have coexisted and live with it and be able to make the next generation of uh, of ash trees for the future. So it's not full extinction, but it's a huge, 80% is a massive number. And also the species that depend on those woodlands, on those trees, are likely to disappear because of that. So not just individual species that are dependent entirely on ash will decline, just species that live in a wood. You know, if, you, if you're lying in a woodland and you look up and 80% of the trees die, that that sunlight, that air, that moisture, the wind is all going to completely change and that climate that you've been used to will be not like anything you recognise. So a lot of species, both specialists and generalists, are likely to suffer quite badly from, from you know, 80% loss of trees. The species that are entirely dependent on ash, we're hoping we'll find others to, to move to. And there's a, there's a few species we're looking at, such as older lime, um, possibly even sycamore as substitute species, and even something called aspen, which is actually native to the UK. It's one of the poplar family, and um, we're hoping that some other tree species will, will come and replicate the things that ash did. A lot of wildlife moves very slowly, not at the speed we do, so they will, um, they will take a while, and hopefully they'll have time to be able to adapt. This is not evolution in practice, this is this is fast-scale globalisation caused by things far beyond the normal timescale of plants and animals. Trees are already dying en masse in woodlands. I've got some woods, I manage about 30 across the West Country, and I've got a couple of woods where 
I'd say 30% of the ash trees are already dead. Particularly the young trees, young pole stage trees are not coping with the ash dieback. They're not big enough and sturdy enough to survive. A lot of them regenerated back from the Great Storm in 86, I think it was. And then the mature trees, they're seeming to live with it longer. 200 or 300 year old mature ash in the landscape or even in a woodland seem to be able to tolerate that disease a little bit more. They've got bigger root systems to be able to probably store nutrients for the winter. But in terms of the immediate effect now, you probably won't notice it, but roads are closing so people can chop down trees at a humongous cost to charities and landowners. Pathways are being closed in woodlands to stop people walking under them. You have a choice as a landowner. You either shut that path or you chop down the trees if they're dying. You can't just let people take their chances walking under it. You have a responsibility. So we are having to close paths temporarily to chop them down, um, you know, unfortunately taking in machines to actually try and safely bring them down because we don't want to put a chainsaw operator under them in case the branches fall on their heads. Uh, or on mass, you know, we are having to close roads, huge stretches of roadsides to fell thousands of trees, both at Woodland Trust, National Trust, Highways Agency, Forestry Commission, even private landowners are having to chop down and assess or assess first in the summer to see the, the impact of the disease and how much it's spread. And then we are having to spend thousands and thousands of pounds on you know making them safe for people. Now, that's only the case if it's a health and safety risk. And the Woodland Trust, it looks like our bill, you know, we've, we've budgeted about 10 million pounds on sorting out ash dieback over the next 25 years. Can you imagine how much that affects a charity, you know, like the Woodland Trust, who could be spending it on something better? But if you don't have health and safety, if you can just shut a path, if you don't have anyone walking under that tree, then the, the best advice I can give is don't panic. You know, a tree is only dangerous if someone walks under it. If it's in the middle of a field, not where near, and if it's in the middle of a wood and there's not a path anywhere nearby, then, you know, that, that tree is just going to do its thing and let it naturally fall over time, provide a fantastic habitat for wildlife. But most importantly, don't fell it if you don't have to, because that's the only way we'll find the 20% resistant or tolerant, I should I say. We don't think there's any resistance, but there's a degree of tolerance. You know, nature will find a way of recovering over time without human pesky humans interfering. In the Bathscape area, we've got a couple of woods and... I manage one particularly called Avoncliff Wood that we, we only bought the wood about three or four years ago. Fantastic, ancient woodland, untouched, only a few old management tracks leading into it. And this wood is predominantly ash with a few mature oaks. Would have probably been coppiced in the past, but it's full of mosses and lichens and ferns and it teems with wild garlic and bluebells all spring and summer and it is beautiful and there is amazing what we call maiden ash coppice stem. So rather than just a single mature stem of ash, there's five of them, this beautiful, you know, handful of, of humongous trunks leaning up into, into the canopy. And they are big, big coppice stems because the wood's been untouched for so long. So we bought that wood three years ago and we knew about ash dieback. We didn't know the full scale of it, but we knew that if we were to put in paths and open it up to the public, which is what we generally do as a charity, because we're all about getting people out to nature. We knew if we did that, we'd have to come back in, in a couple of years time and chop all the trees down because we let people walk under them. So 
We did quite a unique thing a few years ago is, is we bought a wood and then we didn't let anyone in it. And we asked all the locals and we went and held some community days and said, look, do you mind if we buy this wood and you all help us fundraise for it, yet we don't let you in? And they said, that's absolutely fine. We were really worried that you were going to open up this untouched, unspoiled little paradise. So we've kept it closed. So we actually bought the fields next door and we planted all those up with young trees so people can walk in that young wood, which we are, you know, growing will be a woodland in, you know, 15, 20 years time. But in the woodland itself, we are using it as a kind of a unique, unique scientific experiment. So we have 10, 10 metre quadrats in there. So if you just imagine a 10 metre by 10 metre square, you stand in the woods, looks like every other part of the wood. There's trees in it and there's plants in it. But we are keeping those 10 fixed quadrats over the next 50 years and every couple of years we're going to go in and we're going to repeat a survey of that 10 meter by 10 meter square and we're going to study we've already carried out two so we carried out one in 2019 and one in 2021 and we have got a load of specialist ecologists in there to survey the plants the lichens the fungi every single plant that comes up throughout that spring and summer every tree that it's in it every shrub that's in it every snail every mollusk every mushroom every bat every dormouse every invertebrate every single insect so everything we can think of and every specialist we can we're monitoring that 10 meter by 10 meter square and seeing how it changes every two years so hopefully we'll see over the next 50 years in a woodland where you don't do anything you don't go in and fell the trees you don't carry out any management you just let nature take its course and you see whether or not the species completely disappear and get extinct which i can keeping my fingers crossed never happens or if it just changes and how it changes so that extra light might benefit some species it might benefit bramble which in turn might benefit butterflies or it might cause a humus, massive pile of humongous deadwood full of beetles and fungus and lichens, you know, churning that into soil again over time. We don't know what's happening yet. It's still too young. And we've had a couple of pretty temperamental climate years. Very, very dry springs, very wet summers, very warm winters. And that's changing things as well. So... Uh, there's a few woods that people are doing this across the country. University of Cambridge do one in um, in Whiteham Woods as well. And we are using Avoncliff Wood just basically on the edge of Bath, just off of the River Avon, to just to use as our living laboratory to see how wildlife changes over time if humans don't touch it. And the bat species seem to be doing pretty well by using all those wonderful cavities and decaying hollows and crevices in 50 years time we'll be able to to work out what worked what didn't so if the next disease comes along again we know whether to do something or not because there's plenty of woods where we're all doing something but we don't all have this unique opportunity to do nothing somewhere where no one goes and no person treads thanks there to joe middleton from the woodland trust and you can find out more about their work by visiting their website which is woodlandtrust.org.uk now, ash dieback, as we know, is a disease we're facing right now in the 21st century. But our ancestors have been doing what they could to protect the fruit harvests for a millennia. And so this year, way back at the end of January, when it was cold and the trees were just beginning to bud, I headed over to Bath City Farm to find out about the centuries-old tradition of wassailing. 
In this part of the country, it's one way to make sure the apple orchards produce abundant, disease-free fruit for making our precious cider. Kilter Theatre, in the form of a character named January, were there to do the honours and take us through the wassailing ceremony. And afterwards, I grabbed a few words with January himself. Oh, and the High Sheriff and the Mayor made a surprise visit. January. I'm the master of the wassailing ceremony here today at the beautiful Bar City Farm. A, a noise or something. We don't want to but the wassail is by far and away my favourite January event, and yours too, I trust. The fruiting trees are asleep. Apples, pears, oh, yeah, no, you're right. Let's go for an hour. Oh, they've been sleeping a while now. Apples, pears, plums, peaches, cherries, the lot of them. But it's our job to wassail them, to wake them up. We've got to chase the evil spirits out of the branches where they've been sleeping throughout the winter and remind those apple trees and whatnot that they need to start getting going with this year's fruit. To be honest, we're going to try and wassail the whole of Bath, because this is quite a high vantage point. And if we turn out that way, you can see all the seven hills upon which Bath is built. And I reckon if we give it a really good shot, there's a few dozy critters right over there by the university that we could just get shimmering in their branches. Down here is a lovely jug full of all the finest apple juices that have been prepared from the apple trees on this farm in previous years. It's delicious. as we give them wassailing wassail. Exciting, I'm here with the High Sheriff. Hello. I'm Shepherd, yes, I'm the High Sheriff of Somerset. It's a wonderful afternoon. The, the rain is almost lashing down, but there are loads of people here, so isn't it great? And tell me why you're here. Well, I'm here because um, I keep on coming back to Bath City Farm because I can't resist it. It's such a wonderful place and such a wonderful energy up here. And wassailing is really important because we're at the start of a new year and therefore we're hoping to drive out the evil spirits and to encourage a good harvest and hopefully to encourage a good year for all of us as well. So we're all here. I'm going to plant a tree in a minute. And I've brought a mare with me because mares are really useful for digging holes and things like that, you see. I'm attired in my gardening boots already for both wassailing and, of course, for planting the tree. Mm. 
and Thomas Shepherd, the High Sheriff, very kindly invited me to come along and I was delighted. Do you know what tree you're planting? Yes, I'm planting a Cox's Orange Pippin, oh. which is my second favourite apple. Oh, what's your favourite? Russet. Okay, yeah, Russet is nice, isn't it? Yeah, but, but, but you, Russets are hard to get, so you have to sort of make do with Cox's Orange Pippins normally. Well, I think I should let you, you two get off up to the Thank you, fire. <laughs> Wassail for this young tree. Young apple tree, we'll wassail thee and hope that thou wilt bear. The Lord does know where we shall be to be merry another year. So blow well and bear well and merry let us be. Let every man and woman drink up their cup with health to this apple tree. Wassail. by Oliver Langdon from Kilter Theatre Company. January, that was fantastic. Oh, all right, I'm glad you enjoyed it, yeah, thanks for coming. And uh, obviously you're not January all the time, is that right, Oliver? That's true. <laughs> Oliver Langdon, is that right? Oliver Langdon, yes, I, I perform for Kilter Theatre. Um, and we, with the Bathscape project, we're running um, four seasonal celebrations uh, every year in different parts of Bath that perhaps don't always get the love that they deserve. So we're here at the City Farm um, and we're moving over to Snow Hill later in the year where we'll be for spring, autumn, winter uh, next year into 2023 and then we're off to Fox Hill. So we're going to keep moving around Bath Seven Hills and see uh, how much seasonal celebrating we can do. Well, thank you so much for today. It was a real pleasure to meet you, meet January and to wassail. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. You can find out more about Bathscape by visiting the website bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. I hope to see you next month.